And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, 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 now. Hello, and welcome to Eastcast Away. We're here tonight to bring you... We're, we're leaving the East Coast studio and we are here to bring you some sounds from East Coast, but also some things that people have submitted. We've got a whole selection of amazing audio to play you and some live music. So um, I'll just for those who don't know about East Coast, we um, are on Resonance FM once a month on the second Wednesday from live from 8 p.m., to 9pm and Eastcast is a kind of revolving door for uh, new audio makers and presenters but also we focus on stories um, from East London mainly but that have a kind of impact all over the world so it's very broad. (laughs) So um, for the purposes of Eastcast I'm Pearl Wise and this is Jessie Lawson. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we should just dive straight in yeah so tonight we're doing a kind of uh open mic for audio so we've asked people to submit audio that we're going to listen to and we're doing it in sets of four so the first four we're going to hear from uh claire lynch maylee evans the science gallery and claire crofton oh, sorry. <laughs> claire crofton <laughs> My first realisation that there was something else was my mum had lost her first son. He was three and a half. So my brother, my first brother. But I didn't know him. He was born and died way before I was born. And when I was born she'd just begun to have a nervous breakdown. I wasn't the cause of the nervous breakdown, it was the losing child. He was hit by a lorry. And um, as time went on and I was growing up, sort of six, seven, I would start to tell her stories and she would start crying. And I didn't know I had a brother, but they were his memories I was telling her. So that was the first realization that something else was going on in the world. It's a normal thing, you know, and and all ancient cultures, you know, they'll take a herb or a, a ayahuasca to to get in touch with the god gene, and uh, but here it's seen as a mental illness, 
but I think things are changing and, and we're ascending again I think people are you know the control mechanisms of, of finance and, and organised religion and um, you, you know television and advertising I think they're all breaking down I think a lot of people I know are sort of beginning to break through that and ascending to a, a more spiritual realm the normal place we should be in There's four other people in here who were told to Dr. Brassi, I think the house is haunted. Only he's called his doctor, he's a scientist, only he's Israeli. So he doesn't believe any of that. You know, and when I went there and I said to him, the house is haunted. And he went, you're back in the Gordon. And I went, no. I said, there's something in the house. And, I, and he said, you know what? He said, I oh, know, I shouldn't tell you this, but you're the fifth person to say in that building that the, house, that the place is, you know has a presence and because I was concerned that it was because I was vulnerable and I was concerned it was a bad presence even though I wasn't thinking anything bad and I wasn't doing anything bad it's just disconcerting because it's outside your known reality so so when the priests came they were like oh the yeah, Nigerian one walked in and went oh he said, I've never felt anything like it. And then we saw it, it's above the bed. And I went, can you, can you see it? And he went, I can see it. He went, he said, don't worry, there's nothing bad here. He said, it's beautiful. Which made me cry. Because it was a relief, do you know what I mean? The day after the blessing, I... I remember waking up at like three in the morning and I told him it was a vortex over the bed. I'd be like, oh, for fuck's sake, what the hell is going on? And I thought, you're not, I'm strong. You're not gonna push me to a place where I'd, I'm gonna be in such despair. You know, I was fighting. I was like, cause I've got her to look after. And you're not gonna take me to that place where I'm turned into a complete nut walking the streets in slippers. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you're not gonna. You, I'm not that person. You're not gonna do that to me. But it, it, the intention was the opposite, to make me stronger and to restore my faith. And like I say, I would get up to go to the loo, and this shadow, this spirit thing, would step out of me. And and when I woke up, I'd every movement I made, there were like a thousand shadows of me just hitting every corner of the room. It's just. Uh, it's so difficult to explain, and, it, and I'm not crazy, but it's been the most amazing journey. Amazing. Wednesday, the 29th of March, it's 11.15, and <laughs> I finally cracked. I mean, it was kind of inevitable, but I did think it would take me a bit longer to have a proper cry. It's kind of just everything. 
I, it's just frustrating. It's just not being able to understand what's going on in meetings and struggling to communicate. Isolation. Not sleeping very well last night. And then the washout that was this morning that somehow taking me back to square one. It's just been pissing it down all night. Put my alarm on for five and could just hear... the rest of this morning I'm just feeling, feeling quite homesick ill not even ill just dead <laughs> I found it interesting that it was the song by the sleepy lagoon that set me off it was that lilting tune that <laughs> that made me lose it brought me into my dining room with my family for a Sunday brunch with Radio 4 tinkling ever so lightly in the background and those opening bars that could mean only one thing it's Kirsty Young and there's an island discs In that moment, I realised how much how much I missed them. Charlotte was on her period. My name's Femi. Hi, I'm Jessie. And you're listening to a Science Gallery London podcast. Today we're going to be asking, is there still a reluctance to talk about periods openly? What happens when we do and what happens when we don't? Australian artist Casey Jenkins is contributing the latest in a series of works about menstrual stigma to the blood exhibition. We Skype Casey to find out more. My name's Casey Jenkins and I'm an artist. I mainly work with performance and installation. And over recent years, I've been working a lot with um, body parts and functions that are associated with women. In 2013, I did a performance artwork called Casting Off My Womb, which was 28 days long. So I was just sitting in a gallery space knitting every day for about six hours a day from um, yarn that I inserted each day in my vagina. And so I just sat and knitted it out. It was really slow and quite meditative. 
Um, and as I started, it started off the yarn was white. Then when I started bleeding, when I started menstruating, the yarn slowly turned red. And then when I finished menstruating, it turned back to white. In November of 2013, a TV station walked into the small gallery in Durban and filmed Casey knitting. They uploaded it to YouTube with the title Vaginal Knitting and it went viral. So it went from being a really quiet contemplative work to being something that was really loud and bombastic because as soon as it hit the internet, people reacted with sort of furor. They were really outraged. To date, the video has been seen over 7 million times. We asked Casey the sorts of comments and responses she got from the online community. Yeah, it was it was really interesting that it, though there were like tens of thousands of comments, they were all really similar. So I actually, for a previous work, I went through and collated them, and you could you could put them into about twenty categories. There wasn't much variation in the comments, and the top one would be gross, disgusting. It then there was yeah saying she's crazy. And then there were, like, um, a lot of guys were saying that they were going to go and knit out of their asses as their response. I guess trying to have some kind of connection with it because it's something, you know, that they wouldn't physically be able to do. Three, two, one, zero, negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, negative five, negative six, negative seven. <gasps> What are the consequences of menstrual stigma? In March this year, a news story blew up about a group of students in Leeds who were skipping school because they couldn't afford to buy sanitary products. One 11-year-old girl told BBC Radio Leeds that she had taped toilet roll to her underwear and missed school every month. Since the story broke, several charities who have been providing sanitary products to women in developing economies have turned their attention closer to home. We got in touch with Chloe, founder and co-director of No More Taboo, a charity tackling taboos surrounding menstruation and sanitation. We've heard because we do education programmes in school, so we've heard it first hand from girls in Bristol as well. Um, but what was really brilliant with this kind of press attention was that they actually interviewed the girl and she talked about her own experiences and people were like, wow, this is actually happening here in the UK. There's a girl to prove it. And what we found really interesting is that people are like, well, this must just be happening in Leeds. Um, obviously, there's huge rising poverty rates all over the UK. You know, until someone puts it in your face, you don't think about it because society has told us to put it to the back of your mind, not discuss it. So that, that's all part of what we're doing and why we're called No More Taboo, because we're bringing it to the attention of more people. This started off as a, a student project. My other director um, started doing it as part of her dissertation and she, you know, as part of that you have to do quite a comprehensive literature study. She couldn't find anything else around this and that shocked both of us. Whilst we were researching this podcast, we struggled to find much research around the topic too. We've discussed menstruation in relation to women and girls, which is reflective of the conversations we had. However, Menstruation and experiences of shame associated with the presence or absence of female organs is a reality for many trans and intersex people too, and this is an area in which the need for new research is particularly urgent. We'd like to leave you with the words of Travis Alabanza, a transgender spoken word artist. They said the room was woman only. I heard woman only. 
I heard womb and only our wounds. I heard the silence from the white women who laughed when their boyfriend called me a freak on the tube. I heard them say women only, but instead watched as their mouths disregarded that I could ever be woman enough to feel danger. I heard them measure up who was woman enough to be in the room. I heard them stare each of them throw right at the bulge between my legs. I heard them scream privilege in my ear. Womb. Womb only. Woman only. Womb only. Tubes. Tubes and pipes, lines and binaries, biting us from the hunting and the hunted womb. Womb only. Woman only assist womb. Woman only assist womb. Assist You've been listening to a Science Gallery London podcast. You can listen to the full version of Travis's poem, Woman Only, by clicking the link in the description below. You'll also find a full interview with Casey there and a link to ACM's song, Trans Rosetta. Please tweet us with any related experiences that you've had or thoughts stemming from this discussion. We aim to bring diverse voices and perspectives into each conversation and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening! So we're upstairs and we're taking each other's clothes off and it's all going great and uh, we're, we're naked in bed. I think, uh, something is not right with my stomach right now. So <laughs> I like stand up because I've been lying down for like the last five minutes. I, um, you know, it's fine when you're lying down when you're really hammered, but it's like, like getting up and it's kind of like wave of nausea just like comes over you. I'm so drunk and it's quite dim in the room. I I can't see where the door is. And I can feel this thing like coming really like this, you know, you know you just know sick is sick is coming. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. And I'm like, I'm running, I literally just run into the corner of the room and there's no door there. It's just like a it's, a, it's a, it's kind of a door to the boiler and I'm like, fuck, okay, wrong thing. And I like blitz across the other side of the room and then I see the door and I literally grab the door and the door handle comes off and I'm like, oh shit, oh shit, like what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And I remember just like literally like shoving my fingers into the gap where the, uh, where the door handle was, like ripping it open and it's just, it's too late, it's too late, it's happening and I and as I run out the door, I trip, I slip, I vomit mid-fall to the ground. It hits the ground before I get there. And I just fall headfirst into my own vomit, like, all over myself. I also smack my head against the banister. And I'm there, like, in a kind of pool of my own vomit, naked, like, in a fetal position, being like, <laughs> Sick all over my hair and my face, like, barely being able to get up. And then her, like, mum, Mexican mum, like, comes out of the hallway. It's like, is everything okay? (laughs) And I was like, fine, everything's fine. And then uh, Ella is absolutely, like, pretty furious. I think we had been swapping two, three texts a day. There was a lot of kisses flying around, and it was, like, started with one X and build up to two eventually. We would deconstruct uh, every single text of my roommate and kind of like endless hours going through, you know, classic flirting. 
phase where you discuss these strategies with a friend, right? You know, like, this is what I got, you know, this one I'm thinking I'm sending, you know, this one I sent her, try and analyze, you know, my next move, trying not to be too, be too eager about it, but trying to push things nicely, trying to understand what it would mean and try to, yeah, to build it up. I remember I was trying to look for a, some kind of excuse to meet her again, you know, quite shy. So I was like, with all this political upheaval, there's a political project I was trying to set up. I want to talk to you about this. We should find the time. So I did eventually. So we arranged it all. I gave my friend two-hour notice. You know, he was out of there. So I went to the spa and I was in the waiting room. I hear my name called and I I turn around and see the most handsome like Iberian fox (laughs) you can imagine. He had these bright blue eyes, jet black hair, you know, like super handsome. And it was like the second we looked at each other, there was just this like, this spark. And we shook hands and it was like touching jumper cables. You know, it was just so electric. So, you know, he was leading me back to the massage room and he asked me if I had ever been to Barcelona before. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I've been to Barcelona before for work, but this is the first time I came here for... And I paused for a second because I was trying to think of a different word to use, but like nothing came up, you know? <laughs> so I I just finished the sentence. Pleasure. And he just kind of like stopped and looked at me for a second. I was like, hmm. When we left the club that night, (laughs) maybe two or three hours later, she started walking home with me back in the direction of my hostel. So I was like, yes, great. Tonight, Tonight maybe we'll... We'll get it on. We had a conversation on the way home. There was a second when the penny dropped. My head is spinning, my heart is pounding. I think I've gone mad. Like, how could this have happened? So that first piece that you heard was called A Most Amazing Journey by Claire Lynch. Uh, with the voice of Patrick P. Theremin and Jono Podmore, and music by Sarah Oxford. The second was Castaway by Maylee Evans. Uh, then we had a podcast produced for the Science Gallery by Femi Oregon-Williams and Jesse Krish. And the last thing you heard was a little showreel from a new podcast by Claire Crofton and Gavin Wong called Swipe Left, Swipe Left. 
next, we have audio from Lucia, uh, then Theo Johnson and Joel Cox, and then some audio from me, and then some from Lucy Dearlove. And we landed. That's when it got really scary. Um, it was terrifying. It's like a step into the unknown. London is my home. I mean, I don't know how long that's going to be. I, I know, I feel like London is just really bad for your mental health. At the moment, England is my story. And Nobody in my whole generation has ever moved out of England. The Irish kind of stuck together. Also, Welcome to London Drug Bureau, Jason Zeclair. My name is Sheikh Ibrahim Kamara. Now, Sheikh, pronounced in the orthodox manner, is Sheikh, which is Arabic, which means I was born into a Muslim family in West Africa, Sierra Leone, many, many moons ago, precisely when 1960. Now, I grew up in Sierra Leone as a child, went to primary school there, I transitioned into secondary school, and by the second year of secondary school, my father and his brother had made a deal that my father's only son being myself, would benefit by coming to London with his brother, my uncle, who was to then come to London to be a financial attaché at the Sierra Leone Embassy. We came by cruise liner, I'm sorry to say. We were in a multi-story flat that was on the sea, literally. It was nauseating, the rocking of this boat. You throw up a lot, you know. It was also an encounter with, if you like, white people, you know, travelling from West Africa to back home, I suppose. I was fascinated in everything about them, and they were fascinated with us, I suppose. You know, the speech, the manners, the food, the encounter with the culinary culture was something else. To go to breakfast and the waiter will come up and address you very really, good morning, sir, and you're thinking, oh, this is nice. And they will ask you what you want. And you will say bread, and then they will give you choices of bread. Toast or not toast, and you're thinking, okay. And you just would go for something, and then that will be served to you, and you would choose your egg. A boiled egg will arrive, and this is, I think it's called soldiers or something. Now, it comes in a cup, unusual. It comes with a spoon, unusual. <laughs> My younger cousin and I will ignore the spoon and the cup. Just put it aside. We're not into that. Some butter, please. That, that's that. And we will in, endeavor to crack this egg as we, we know how with our fingers. That's fine. Stage one. It's a bit soft, which is okay. And then you get to the middle and it's, the yolk is still alive. And we abandon breakfast. <laughs> Scorpio's house was small. The walls were painted a crimson red and every inch was covered by objects, artworks, knick-knacks. So, like, weather, chairs, whatever, John T or anything. Skulls from small animals, plastic toys, porcelain ornaments, endless bric-a-brac, and wind chimes hung in every corner. Can we have a little tour of the house, Scorpio? It looks pretty impressive. Okay, one, the layout is north, south, east and west. So this is, what, east, isn't it? So that's all birds and feathers and air and the planet and the witches and the eagles and dragons. And then this uh, is north. Everything on that is earth. Then the opposite is south, so that's everything there is fire. And then this used to be water. So everything here was all shells and crystals and abalone. 
icons, statues, and I collect fetishes from around the world. Everything's kind of a bit of a religious or spiritual based because I'm very anti all this God and all that. I can't, I'm still trying to work it out in my brain because I was brought up as a Catholic and all that. And then I've trained as a witch and a chaos magician and all this other stuff. When I was 24, I moved from Bristol to London. I had no one left to sleep with in Bristol. I'd had the ones I wanted and was too outrageous for any of the rest. London opened opportunities that would never have happened anywhere else. Oh my God, you could be like starving or nothing. You just walk out of the street and there'll be like something. Like, it doesn't matter if you've got nothing here. Something's always going to happen. If you get out and grab, you know, grab life by the bollocks, you can actually get life out here. And it doesn't have to cost you millions of quid or nothing. Mind you, I fucked up a lot too, though. <laughs> yeah, she's not get me wrong. You know what I mean? Oh, God, you start off on, like, Friday and go all the way through till Monday sort of thing. Go out with a fiver, but still get trolleyed and come home like two days later. Friday night, you might go out somewhere. Fetish clubs, straight fetish clubs, goffy, punky type clubs, rock clubs, you know, anything alternative. Saturday night would be trade, which would be all the way through to Sunday. Uh, trade was like sort of techno and very, very mixed up, like young, old, anybody. And then after trade, which ended about two, three o'clock in the afternoon, you'd probably pop off to the market tavern up in Camden. Go and watch Regina Fong, the drag queen. And then after that, you'd pop along down to South London to Vauxhall, to the Vauxhall Tavern, which is still going, and go and watch Paul O'Grady do Lily Savage. And then you'd go to FF, just techno, 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 just techno. Till Monday. And then you'd go some one's house or squat or whatever. Take more stuff and dot your eyes and snort your teas and carry on till like Monday evening or whatever and whatever, peter out whenever, maybe even Tuesday, depending on where you were. <laughs> I threw up on someone's sofa once. And that ended in entire saga of friendship. I mean, like, I just see throwing up, throwing up, innit? It's just what happens to your body when it's had enough of whatever. But no, they took it so personally. <laughs> Which it might have been because it was, like, brand new sofa and, like, a, what's that, a zebra stripe? <laughs> Some fat old queen's sofa. <laughs> You know, London's quite daunting, unless you've really got some kahunas, and then you're all right, or you've got a good sort of support system. But when you're, like, in the middle of nowhere, like, slipping on your cocktail frock to go out for the evening and trying to get out of your little area without being murdered by all the local lads. You know, we, we, had, we lived in an oppressive society. That's the only place we had any kind of real, real freedom. Everything else was shit in your life. You know, you're frightened to go out and get beaten up all the time. You had to have the other thing. Otherwise, you'd just fucking go mental. 
There's nothing worse than mental queers. Huh. I mean, London, the whole life is completely different, London. You can hide here, you can go out, go mental and then just disappear and not be seen for like 20 years, you know. <coughs> Fighting this flu for weeks. All of it was amazing. It was pretty slutty and dirty and fucking liberating and fucking ace. What can I say? Everything was really freer. I don't know why. Very, very freer and different. It's not like that now at all in any way. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, you go there now, the old coal hern, innit? And it's like a normal bar, a restaurant bar. And I look at the little window arch and think, yeah, I remember the night I got buggered over that arch. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And on a Tuesday afternoon... Do you know what I'm saying? In the middle of the day, getting shagged over some window. Yeah, those were the days. <laughs> well, sex is something that you have to do when you're in love with someone. And to show your love, I think you have to express by doing that. Uh, two people <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> um, and can I ask you what your sexuality is? <laughs> <laughs> Don't think I can get on, sorry. <laughs> I'm too embarrassed, I can't even speak now. <laughs> my voice is quick. <laughs> sorry, my darling. No, that's okay. I can't even go up anymore. <laughs> Something that's agreeable between a man and a woman. Physical and emotional, like, uh, moments people share together. It's a physical activity and that involves a level of intimacy. You know, to be honest, I used to have all, always orgasms when I have sex. But at the moment, frankly speaking, I have a trouble because if I have a sex, I cannot have the, I cannot have the orgasm because I suffer from the cancer, prostate cancer, and now I am on antibiotics but when I take these antibiotics I cannot have the organs I didn't have organs and the doctor, I told them so the doctor advised me to that he can uh, prescribe the Viagra but at the moment I don't know uh, what to do because if I get a Viagra after I think I can be dependent on Viagra and I don't know how does it work so at the moment I'm not very happy because I can't I cannot use the sex like I used to do. Do you orgasm every time you have sex? Um, not every time. No, definitely not. If they ask, then I'll say like I won't, but I like won't really say it otherwise. Why not? I don't know. I don't know. I suppose sometimes you don't want to be like too needy in a way. It's so weird. Sexual <laughs> stimulation. Yeah, more than penetration yeah 100% basically if I'm on top I'll come and then but otherwise not really <laughs> my partner I mean my wife she's 65 so she doesn't have the organs I have turned out straight in life that's it other people turned out different ways I've got many good friends in homosexuals, be they female or male relationships. And 
uh, doesn't make them any different to me. It was like 2010, it was a different time. And I slept with my first girlfriend and I told my friends the next morning um, and they didn't really say much. And then the following day, they came to me and they said that they'd done some Googling and actually, in fact, what I had done was not sex. And that was the end of it. And why, why did they say that? Because they were like, well, we Googled how do lesbians have sex? <laughs> um, and we found out what you do. And it turns out that that's, we, we just think that you should know that really sorry this is really awkward but what you've done isn't actually sex it's just, it's just not sex um, and so that was uh, a bit infuriating a bit difficult the context of this was we were at church so they their minds were blown that they actually had been having premarital, premarital sex because the things that I was saying were sex um, they felt like that was a kind of loophole, you know? I'm Ailey, I'm 24, and I'm your flatmate. I first learned about um, straight sex when I asked my mum what sex is, and then she was like, oh, uh, it's a special cuddle um, that Jesus made. Something, uh, and then a few days later, she brought me this book, which was for like three-year-old children, I think, and she read it out to me, even though I was like eight or something. She read it out to me, and we were in a tiny caravan on a caravan holiday, and my sister, who's five years older than me, just retreated to her bunk with her hands over her ears. She put a curtain round herself. She's going la la la, because this caravan is literally, I mean, it was the I mean, she wasn't far away from us at all. She's like a meter away from us, going la la la. And my mum read this book and it didn't tell me any more than just that it's a special cuddle, really, that God created. And then, I don't know how I worked out what lesbian sex is. I actually don't know. I think I just probably started having a wank and then was like, oh, I could do this with someone else. And then we, we just went from there. I probably did some Googling. There was the internet, obviously. I probably went on Tumblr or something. <laughs> Yeah, so people quite often are like, oh, the thing that you think that you're doing that is sex is not, so that's actually foreplay, just to let you know, that's actually foreplay. Um, and so I kind of never really use the word, I feel like it's what straight people say. Do you have penetrative sex? Uh, yes, but it's not really the be-all and end-all of the sex act, and if I don't have penetrative sex, I don't, I don't think that it's a wasted exercise I would say it's nice to have penetration sometimes but not all the time sometimes I think of it like an after eight you don't always want an after eight sometimes it can be a good addition to a meal but you wouldn't say you haven't had a meal if you didn't eat an after eight although that's making it sound like I do the penetration last which isn't what I do I like to use penetration as foreplay <laughs> but then that's just me <laughs> I just think sex is great, everyone should be having way more sex, everyone should be talking way more about sex, 
I think sex should be treated in the same way as we treat just any kind of personal growth. You should be trying to get better at communicating about sex and having sex. And it's really important. People think it's not important. It's so important. It's not like a fun little recreational thing if you have time. It's important. It keeps your, your mind healthy. So I think. It's my, <laughs> another of my hot takes. <laughs> <laughs>
messing around in the kitchen by myself and then you're like oh, okay well now I've got a great excuse to invite people over because I want to show them this dish and so then actually when you've got people around it's not stressful because you know exactly what you're doing it's something you cook before it's something you're really excited to share with people in a way I probably end up cooking simpler stuff sometimes when when people come around because it's just like oh yeah but let's just talk like you want to show off but you sort of want to have something that you can just chuck together I feel like when we talk about cooking for ourselves there's always like an element of being defensive like oh I can do this for myself like despite what we're told why do you think that is what do you think it's about well I think it goes back to what I was saying about it being cooking and food being considered a sort of communal thing or a couple's thing or both um I mean and I've sort of said before I I feel like it's almost a defiant act to say I'm buying a steak and a nice bottle of wine and I'm gonna sit and eat it by myself but and yeah that does sound quite confrontational and 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 actually the act of it is not and it and it it's it's defiant in a nice way and it and it's saying that the world doesn't have to be about couples being and then especially for you know a woman in my 30s the image of a single woman in your 30s is oh you must you must wish someone was having dinner with you though or you must be looking for someone to have dinner with and there's no I don't think there's much comprehension in our culture of people just enjoying time by themselves, particularly women. You know, a, a man would be a, a cool bachelor. A woman's just like, oh, you're a sad spinster that cooks rather a lot of squash for yourself. Hey. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, so you just heard uh, Shake's Arrival by Lucia. Uh, and then there was, oh, which was produced for Something to Declare. Uh, and then it was The Life and Times of Fangora Dukakis by London Compass, which is a podcast produced by Theo Johnson and Joel Cox. The third one was um, part of a series that I produced for Eastcast, which is called Starting Conversations. And that was the sex episode. And then the last thing you heard was uh, by Lucy Dearlove. And it's part of her podcast series about food called Lekker, uh, which is all about how food changes and shapes our lives in all kinds of different ways. Oh, and so we're almost at the end of the first half, and we're just going to end the first half with a, a live performance by Mike Bricks. Yeah! <laughs> uh, and it's called Odysseus in Westfield. This is a field recording of a walk down the River Lee into a rowing boat, and from there into Westfield Shopping Centre. This is also the story of Odysseus and the sirens. In Homer's The Odyssey, the eponymous hero is warned of the sirens, the mythological creatures whose beautiful melodies fatally attract passing sailors onto their rocks. Odysseus, his hands tied to the ship's mast, has his men row him past the sirens with their ears waxed. He can hear their melodies, and as a result sees their beauty. But his men, who only see their monstrosity, are ordered not to untie him despite his pleas. For Adorno and Horkheimer, this is aesthetics, in reifying the sounds of the singing, because its source cannot be reached, the temptation of the sirens is neutralized. It becomes a mere object of contemplation, it becomes art. The singing enters Odysseus's body undermining both his rational mind and his sense of perspective, and creates a nexus comprising of rationality, social actuality, nature, 
and the mastery of nature. With this in mind, I mimicked Odysseus's journey past my own late capitalist version of the sirens and made the following three observations. Observation number one, nature and the mastery of nature and culture and the mastery of culture. The ping-pong of the bird calls across the stereo field finds its cultural analogue with the grunting of the tennis players, projecting meaning in the form of a ball from one side of their space to another. These sound signals, designed to garner attention, could be seen to as sound marks, as much a part of the local architecture and customs as the sounds of trains or paddles hitting the water. Human-made, animal-made, and meteorological sound all harmonize to create a sense of urban park life, a blending of activity that subtly challenges the distinction between pre- and post-industrial acoustic environments that shape are characterized. The distant low-frequency roar of the wind is the keynote, a set of home frequencies that suggests a culture more concerned with the excitement of nature than with its mastery. This finds its echo in Adorno and Horkheimer's evocation of mana, the moving spirit, the echo of the real supremacy of nature in the weak souls of primitive men. Krause's niche hypothesis of an ecosystem whose species vocalise into different niches of the frequency spectrum can be applied to the weekend pastimes of various East London communities. No species appears to be at risk of dying out from unheard mating calls or warning signals. But at Westfield, it is when the mastery of nature turns to the mastery of human nature, of the corralling of human drives and desires into a profit motive, that the real masking occurs. One rather dull explanation for the full spectral assault of the shopping mall might be that different members of the same species are competing for goods, for a niche within the soundscape, for communication and ultimately survival. The instinctive pull of the more intimate spaces provided by the shops may be part of this survival instinct, a sign of a civilization for whom the threat of pure natural existence to have to go back to the state of nature from which the subject has extricated itself is the driving fear behind their behaviour. My interpretation is more depressing, of an already dying species, aware of the futility of attempting a mating call or a warning signal in such a sonic environment, a culture submissive under the strain of holding the eye together to quote Adorno and Horkheimer, as the sirens and the knowledge of the past demand our future. Observation number two, the public and the private. Laurent Ballant posits the idea that the public sphere is not a rational, deliberative space, but is instead an affective realm, a place in which our actions are governed by the emotional or bodily response to a stimuli. The exchanges or warnings between rowing boats on the river are both deliberative 
reliant on consideration and rational for the safety of all on the water, with their parallel in the bird calls, train horns and footsteps. The same could be said of the physical border that each consumer creates in their navigation through the shopping arcade, using the projection of their voice to allow for smooth passage past or into each shop. Their conversations act as both a means of expression, of communication, and a portable sonosphere that allows for a wider physical channel through the crowds. However, on entering a shop, the listener is immediately relieved of low bass rumble, of fragmented language, and a noise that to the shopper feels unwanted to their mission, a potential threat to the closed system of the retail experience. Instead, there is a calming, spectral specificity that gives the feeling of purpose, a master of what had felt, a mastering of what had felt like animalistic drives, of a civilization in the midst of a prehistory. Just as Odysseus heard the song of the sirens and saw them as beautiful women, or the wax-eared sailors saw monsters, we leave the informational chaos of the arcade and enter simplicity and purpose, a linear, EDM flow of information. What then if we take the entire shopping centre as an affective realm, as a three-dimensional space energised by drives that occur at a pre-meaning stage in our actions? Levinas posits the idea of the public sphere as a space in which our subjectivity in experiencing and interconnecting with the other or otherness can be realised. At first listen, the fleeting exchanges that pass our ears could be seen as exactly this type of experience. Yet Westfield's wide spectral impression evokes instead our evolutionary response to natural threats like volcanoes and earthquakes. The sonic stimuli serve to undermine any possible experience of alterity, creating instead a shared hyper-object that through a sensory manipulation of our affective realm temporarily abducts our subjectivity. The shopping centre becomes both legally and phenomenologically private property. Observation number three. Metabolising capitalism capitalising metabolism. To observe the system behaviour within Westfield's architecture, to see Westfield as another unauthored potential sounding instrument, is to take a non-human turn, to decenter the human and emphasise the agency of the non-human world. Just as Odysseus encounters the non-human in liminal form in a liminal space. To see Westfield as one of Auger's non-places, a place of transience where human subjectivity is too weak to elevate space into place is to see every shopper as mitochondria, holding a form of unidentified agency but one whose affective potential the host cell is unaware of. To see Westfield as one of Keller Easterling's self-reflexive spatial products, imbued with myths, desires and symbolic capital, is to reinforce its unity and autonomy as a closed system. We move in scale from the unquantifiable, unmeasurable hyperobject to the microscopic organic cell, 
one whose membrane is a sonic one. As every action or behaviour is transferred into sonic energy, this noise, the waste products from the retail experience, is fed back into a perfect cause and effect loop. The formerly unwanted sound takes on a profound affective quality, the space metabolising the energy created by the collective entity of shoppers and generating its own homeostatic system, using the unwanted sound to encourage flight into each shop. To conclude, I began as a sound walker, agentive and mediating to cite Walter Benjamin, but I ended up being mediated, my footsteps and spatial presence contributing to the sonic system of consumption I first intended to capture in my ears. We too become a sounding body, unknowingly creating the sonic energy that Westfield relies on to exist and regenerate. Perhaps the spaces of late capitalism are not privatised sites of optimal exchange and surplus value creation, but vast cellular bodies of immense sonic energy transfer. In listening to the recording, I feel instead a sonically induced death drive, a flight response to a state of entropy within the dominant system, a yearning like Odysseus to be metabolised into energy to as quickly as possible find my spectral niche, satisfy my pre-coded genetic destiny, and die. So we're going to have a 15-minute break, and we will be, we'll be back with more sounds. See you in 15 minutes. Have a drink. Stretch your legs. <laughs> <laughs> 